I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of assault, robbery, drug use, violence, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. One half of a modern-day Bonnie and Clyde duo has pleaded guilty to robbing banks in the West. After both men were paroled in 1932, they teamed up with Bonnie Parker and started robbing banks. Arthur Penn changed the way Hollywood made movies with Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde are remaining together, which uh, is an incredible thing. Fame is an interesting concept. The idea that everyone knows your name and could pick your face out of a crowd. The idea that people know you before they actually know you. Fame is a weird thing, you know, it just takes your life over and you can't turn it off and you can't turn it back and you can never be anonymous again. You can never go back. Many people struggle with fame. Some live for it. Nowadays, there are many kinds of fame. People can become famous for being talented, famous for being famous, internet famous, and even famous for hiding one's true identity. And don't forget, infamous. Today, we continue our story of Bonnie Parker, one of the most infamous women in history, who traveled the United States from 1932 to 1934, committing crimes alongside her boyfriend, Clyde Barrow. Bonnie and Clyde had a rap sheet a mile long that included petty theft, jailbreak, armed robbery, kidnapping, and murder. They were two 20-somethings on a wild adventure, and the Southwest was their playground. Bonnie and Clyde made sure everybody knew their names. They kept a scrapbook that held their wanted photos and splashy headlines about their crime sprees. In 1933, they would reach the height of their infamy before falling hard to rock bottom. But Bonnie and Clyde wouldn't go down without a fight. Hi, I'm Claire, and this is Female Criminals. Today, we're talking about notorious criminal Bonnie Parker, 
who stormed through the Southwest in the early 1930s, committing robbery, kidnapping, and murder with her boyfriend, Clyde. And this is my co-host, Vanessa. Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Bonnie Parker was a woman from a poor suburb of Dallas, Texas, who grew up wanting to be famous. At age 15, she married a classmate who turned out to be a criminal. He would leave her alone for months at a time while he went on crime sprees. In 1930, at the age of 19, Bonnie met Clyde Barrow. She was instantly smitten with him, and though he was in and out of prison throughout their relationship, she decided to stick with him and even broke him out of jail. Beginning in the winter of 1932, Bonnie and Clyde went on the road together, committing robberies and kidnapping police officers as they traveled throughout the Southwest. Bonnie played the getaway driver as Clyde and his fellow gang members robbed banks and murdered people who got in their way. On January 6, 1933, 22-year-old Bonnie 23-year-old Clyde and their teen gang member, W.D., got into a gunfight with Texas Deputy Richard A. Smoot Schmid. Schmid and several other officers ambushed Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. when they were visiting a friend's house in Texas. Clyde ran out of the house shooting, and Bonnie drove the car, with W.D. in the back. After this shootout, Schmid wrote an anonymous letter in the paper that referred to Bonnie as, quote, a tough two-gun girl as tough as the back end of a shooting gallery, end quote. He hoped to draw attention to the fact that she wasn't just a love-struck little lady, but rather than rendering the public afraid, this letter just made them more intrigued. The 1930s were a time when many men and women still held traditional family roles. Women were mainly expected to stay at home, cook and clean, and take care of their children. At just 22, Bonnie had changed the public's perception of what a criminal looked like and what women were capable of. After escaping their gunfight, the gang got in a car accident in a muddy field. They knew the police were hot on their trail, so they ran to a nearby house and paid the owner to pull the car out of the mud with a team of mules. The homeowner agreed, and soon enough, the gang was back on their way. The year was off to a bad start. From January to March of 1933, Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. were on the run, hiding out from the police who were hell-bent on catching them. They were too high-profile to rob banks, so they turned to robbing mom-and-pop shops for money. They even robbed gumball machines. This went against everything Bonnie and Clyde stood for. After all, they were supposed to be Robin Hood figures. They usually stole from banks, which were the picture of evil in the South since the start of the Great Depression in 1929. In the 1920s, people had invested their money and put it into banks. And when the Depression happened, the banks didn't have a strong enough system to keep up with the customer withdrawals foreclosures and property repossessions increased. 
Bonnie and Clyde weren't supposed to steal from the working people, but they had no choice. It seems strange that Bonnie and Clyde had a moral compass, but they justified their actions by believing they were sticking it to the man by giving their stolen money to poor farmers and their own families. They were against the establishment and everyone who stood for it. Vanessa is going to discuss the psychology for this episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for this show. According to criminal psychologist Shad Maruna, most criminals attempt to justify their actions after they have committed crimes. This was possibly a way to lessen their guilt about having committed the crimes. So claiming they were helping people was a way to make Bonnie and Clyde feel better about their actions. It's likely that even when Bonnie and Clyde were forced to rob small business owners, they came up with some kind of excuse for what they did. And when they took hostages, they tried to treat them well for likely the same reason. On January 26th, 1933, in Springfield, Missouri, they were pulled over by a cop, Thomas Purcell. As had happened often throughout their crime spree, Bonnie and Clyde took him hostage. He rode with them until their car broke down. Then WD and Purcell went on foot to a nearby town to get a new car battery. Purcell helped WD carry the battery back and helped Clyde replace it. Grateful for Purcell's help, Bonnie and Clyde let him go about 70 miles away from Springfield, near Joplin, Missouri. As we talked about in part one, Bonnie and Clyde often took hostages rather than killing people. Some say this was Bonnie's idea. She hated to see anyone die if there was a way around it. This may also be due to the super optimism that psychologist Stanton Samenow has found in serial criminals. Basically, it's the belief held by serial criminals that they won't ever be caught. So if setting hostages free would help Bonnie and Clyde feel better, they found no reason not to. Since they were now almost constantly on the run, Bonnie and Clyde didn't have a lot of time to see their families. In the last episode, we talked about how close Bonnie was with her mother. She had lost her father when she was four, so Bonnie hated being away from her only parent for extended periods of time. It was too dangerous for Bonnie and Clyde to go home. They knew police would be on the lookout for them. But they found a way to stay safe and see their families about once a month. Bonnie and Clyde would drive past Clyde's family house and throw out Coke bottles, which held letters about where to meet. Then Clyde's mother would call Bonnie's and say, I'm fixing red beans. This was the code which signaled that Bonnie and Clyde were in town. Bonnie's mother and sister, Billie Jean, would visit her every time she was in town. She told them that she felt lonely and missed being around them and around other women in general. Sometimes Billie Jean would ride around with them for a few days just to keep Bonnie company. She was married and had two young children, but she was dedicated to her sister. During the short visits, Bonnie and Clyde gave their families money, even as they struggled themselves. In March 1933, Clyde went to see his older brother, Buck. Buck and his wife, Blanche, were living in Texas. Buck, now 30, had just gotten out of jail. 
He was an escaped convict when he'd met Blanche, but after they married, he decided he didn't want to live the life of a criminal on the run. So he turned himself in to serve the rest of his time. Now he had been rightfully released. 23-year-old Blanche was religious and responsible, the favorite daughter of Clyde's mother. She was excited to start a new life with her husband now that he was free. However, Clyde wanted Buck to come on the road with him for a while. Blanche hated this idea and didn't want to go. Buck told her he was going to go no matter what. He issued her an ultimatum, go with him or stay here in Texas without him. Blanche wanted to be with him, so she acquiesced. They moved with Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. to an apartment in Joplin, Missouri. Blanche didn't like Bonnie or Clyde very much. She hated Bonnie's smoking and drinking, and she hated Clyde and his foolish life of crime. She blamed Clyde for all of her troubles. If it wasn't for him, she would be living a proper, married life with Buck. But Bonnie liked Blanche, though that wasn't so surprising. Bonnie seemed to like everyone she met in her travels. Bonnie didn't cook or do dishes, so she was excited to have Blanche around, who would clean and make them all dinner every night. Sometimes Bonnie and Blanche would go out shopping or to the movie theater for fun. This was a nice little period for all of them to play house. In fact, this was the only time in Bonnie and Clyde's two-year crime spree when they actually had a semi-permanent place to live. Bonnie and Clyde were lying low. Bonnie got to spend time with another woman for a while, and Clyde got to spend time with his brother, who he hadn't seen in years. What the gang didn't realize was that the neighbors were suspicious of them from the beginning. They had fancy cars. They would go out late at night. They had a lot of money to go shopping often and have groceries delivered. And one night, Clyde accidentally fired off a gun while cleaning it. They were in an apartment in a city, and Clyde failed to realize that he had to alter his lifestyle when living in close quarters like this. On April 12, 1933, Clyde stole a car and brought it back to the apartment. Bonnie thought he was stupid for bringing a stolen car back to where they were living, and Clyde grew angry with her. They started arguing, which turned into a violent fight. Blanche noted that Bonnie and Clyde would fight often. But Bonnie was right. When the neighbors saw the stolen car, they alerted the police, who started watching the apartment. Two days later, on April 14, 1933, Bonnie and Blanche were lounging around the apartment when they heard gunfire. Bonnie later insisted she'd picked up a gun and shot out the window to try to protect the men. However, Blanche said there was no broken window in the apartment. Perhaps Bonnie wanted to make the scene more dramatic in her retellings of it. Everything to her was an adventure, and she always wanted to be the protagonist. After a lull in gunfire, Buck ran up the stairs and told the women that the police were there, and they had to go. Bonnie was wearing a nightgown, kimono, and slippers, but there was no time to change. W.D. came upstairs, and the women saw that he had been shot. Clyde and Buck engaged in a shootout in the garage. When Clyde and Buck felt safe enough, they shouted for Bonnie and Blanche to join them. There were dead police officers lying on the garage floor, but the gang ignored them and got in the car. They all piled inside, and Clyde drove them away. W.D., Clyde, and Buck were all wounded. 
That slowed them down, but they all recovered. More officers arrived at the apartment just after they left. They raided the apartment and found some poems Bonnie had written, as well as an undeveloped roll of film. The police had the film developed. They believed that more photos of Bonnie and Clyde would help aid the public in identifying them. The photos revealed goofy, candid shots of Bonnie and Clyde. In one, Bonnie pretends to smoke a cigar while holding a handgun and leaning on the front of a car. In another, she points a shotgun at Clyde. In a few, Bonnie and Clyde embrace sweetly. The photos revealed the couple behind their crimes and showcased their young love. They also revealed Bonnie's flair for fashion. In each image, she wears a stylish dress, high heels, and a beret. When people saw these photos, they fell in love with Bonnie's style, and berets became all the rage. The Joplin police sent the photos to crime magazines and newspapers for publishing. But this had the exact opposite effect of what the authorities had hoped for. Instead of exposing the vicious criminals to the public, the photos made them celebrities. The news began showing coverage of Bonnie and Clyde after almost every shooting or robbery they committed. And, best of all for Bonnie, theaters began showing the newsreels before movies. Bonnie had always wanted to be in movies, but this probably wasn't quite what she had in mind. Either way, the public had eyes only for her. She was glamorous, charming, dangerous, and audiences only wanted to know more about her. But so did the police. The Barrow Gang had to be careful in the ensuing months. Buck tried to convince Clyde to turn himself in so that he could eventually have a normal life again. But Clyde wasn't interested. And as far as Bonnie was concerned, if Clyde went down, she'd go down with him. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to female criminals. Bonnie, Clyde, Buck, Blanche, and W.D. laid low until April 27, 1933, almost two weeks after the raid in Joplin. In the 13 days following their escape, the gang traveled through New Mexico, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana committing small robberies in order to pay for gas, food, and modest lodging. On this spring day, the gang went to Ruston, Louisiana. Clyde got W.D. to steal a car for him, but the gang lost sight of him as he drove away. The car belonged to Dillard Darby, an undertaker, and he and his friend, Sophia Stone, a home demonstration agent, had been visiting at their boarding house when the theft happened. Dillard and Sophia decided to take Sophia's car and chase after W.D., who was driving away with Dillard's car. Bonnie and Clyde noticed them tailing W.D. and followed them. When the Barrow Gang caught up with Sophia and Dillard, Clyde approached them, hitting Dillard several times with the butt of his pistol and forcing him to get into their car. Bonnie got out of the car and cursed at the woman, forcing her inside the car as well. Bonnie and Clyde drove the hostages to Arkansas. They let them go under the condition that they would stay turned around until Bonnie and Clyde were out of sight. Clyde asked Dillard how much money they had, 
and they didn't have much, so he gave them some to get by on. Dillard and Sophia broke their promise and turned around before Bonnie and Clyde were out of sight. They immediately told the police the license plate number. Sophia tried to say Bonnie hit her and wounded her, which most likely wasn't true. This was the first recorded public sighting of Bonnie and Clyde since their escape from Joplin. The Barrow gang left town after that, but they couldn't find W.D., who was still riding around in the stolen car. For a while, they all laid low. For Bonnie and Clyde, that meant robbing convenience stores or shops in states they hadn't been to lately. But they managed to stay out of trouble for a while. When they met farmers who told them they'd seen the photos of them, Bonnie was insistent that she didn't really smoke cigars. Bonnie always wanted to be ladylike and proper, and it wasn't proper for ladies to smoke cigars. She smoked cigarettes, but was just fooling around with the cigar for the photos. It was crucial that they knew this about her, and she would tell everyone. It's strange that she thought cigars would ruin her reputation when she stood accused of robbery and murder. Bonnie had always wanted to be glamorous. She didn't like the way cigar smoking would look. She may have had a bad reputation, but it was her image she had to uphold. Bonnie and Blanche acted as getaway drivers for the small robberies Clyde and Buck would commit over the next few weeks. On May 11, 1933, the gang headed to Lucerne, Indiana, and set their eyes on the Lucerne State Bank. Clyde and Buck laid down on top of the vault and waited in the bank overnight. When the banker came to work in the morning, they were going to surprise him. But the banker saw them first and shot at them. Bonnie and Blanche followed the plan to a T coming in the getaway car right as they ran out of the bank to escape the bullets. Some civilians tried to stop the car. An old man threw a chunk of wood at the car, and Clyde gave Bonnie a rifle. Bonnie shot at the man, but missed. Bonnie didn't like guns and tried not to use them whenever possible. She later said she missed the man on purpose. One week later, they headed to Okabena, Minnesota, where they robbed a bank and made $1,600, which would be worth about $30,000 today. $700 of that money was in silver dollars, and Bonnie and Clyde wanted to give the silver dollars to their family. According to Blanche, on Mother's Day 1933, Bonnie desperately wanted to go to Dallas to see her mother. Clyde thought it was a bad idea, and they fought. Blanche says Bonnie almost shot him over the idea of not letting her go. Considering Bonnie's commitment to Clyde, it's unlikely she would have shot him. But her mother did mean the world to her. In our last episode, we talked about how Bonnie and her husband, Roy Thornton, moved in with her mother after they were married as teens because she was so homesick without her. Bonnie's fear of abandonment that came with losing her father at a young age may have given her anxiety about being away from her mother. Bonnie may have loved Clyde more than anyone else in this world, but her mother was a close second. Finally, Clyde allowed Blanche to go to Dallas to get his and Bonnie's mothers. Blanche brought Bonnie's mother, Emma, to the meeting place, and Bonnie was thrilled. On the trip to the meeting place, Blanche had told Emma about Bonnie and Clyde's exploits. Emma took Bonnie aside and tried to convince her to leave Clyde and turn herself in to the police. 
But Bonnie wouldn't hear of it. Emma said it was inevitable that Clyde would die. And Bonnie said that if that was the case, she wanted to die with him. By this point, Bonnie had many chances and reasons to leave Clyde. He had gotten her arrested. He disappeared for months after she broke him out of jail. He could be abusive. But she still stayed. Many studies have been done on toxic relationships and what kinds of people fall into them. There are two kinds of adults who often find themselves in quick-moving, clingy relationships. Those who are anxiously attached, meaning they fear abandonment. And those who are high on attachment avoidance, meaning those who shy away from emotional connection. I'm guessing Bonnie could be considered anxiously attached. That's right. Psychologists Lorne Campbell and Tara Marshall discovered that anxiously attached people are most vulnerable to toxic relationships because they tend to have low self-esteem and are afraid of being abandoned. They're known to seek reassurance, constant emotional support, and to become obsessed with their partners. I think it's safe to say Bonnie was obsessed with Clyde. I would say so. Her love for Clyde, combined with her sensation-seeking personality, would have been more than enough to keep her in this life of crime. Emma was obviously distraught by her daughter's decision, but she and Bonnie enjoyed the rest of their short visit before Bonnie and Clyde went back on their way. They also finally met up with W.D. after their long separation. We don't know what he did while he was away from the gang, but we know that he joined back up with the Barrow Gang as soon as he could. That summer in 1933, police in Iowa, Missouri, and Texas formed a coalition to take down Bonnie and Clyde. They didn't know about the group of interstate police who were working together to arrest them. But even so, the summer of 1933 was a difficult one for them and their gang. On the night of June 10, 1933, in Wellington, Texas, Clyde was driving fast down a dark country road, reaching speeds of 70 miles per hour. Bonnie was in the passenger seat, and W.D. was in the back. Outside a farmhouse, Clyde crashed through a barricade, and the car rolled several times. The farmhouse belonged to the Pritchard family. When the Pritchards and their son-in-law, Alonzo Cartwright, saw what happened, they ran outside. Bonnie was trapped inside the car. The car battery was smashed and acid poured out onto her right leg, burning her badly. The Pritchards helped pull Bonnie from the car and took them all inside. They tried to convince Clyde to bring Bonnie to see a doctor, but Clyde refused. Alonzo Cartwright was suspicious of this and went to get the sheriff. The police showed up and went into the house, where Bonnie was lying, probably unconscious from severe acid burns. Clyde got the jump on them, pulled a gun, and took them hostage. He shoved them into the back of the car. Then he carried Bonnie to the car and put her in the back seat as well. She had cuts on her face and arms and suffered from the burns. She was moaning in pain and probably still unconscious. Farther down the road, Clyde tied the police up and set them on the side of the road. Clyde and W.D. met back up with Blanche and Buck, and they rented a cabin to stay in for the night. Clyde rarely wanted to spend money on proper lodging, but Bonnie was hurt too badly to sleep in the car. By June 15, 1933, 
five days after the accident, Bonnie wasn't getting any better. Clyde took the chance of getting a doctor. The doctor insisted Bonnie needed to go to a hospital, but Clyde refused to take her. It was too dangerous. Showing up to a hospital would mean immediate imprisonment for the duo. The doctor prescribed Bonnie a barbiturate drug called Amatol, a depressant and sedative that helped Bonnie sleep through her pain. Between 1930 and 1990, barbiturates were listed as some of the most abused drugs in the U.S. Many celebrities throughout history have died from barbiturate overdoses, including Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe, and Jimi Hendrix. Barbiturates are highly addictive, and addicts can feel restless and anxious. Withdrawal from Amatol can occur as soon as 8 to 12 hours after the last dose and can cause restlessness, anger, and violent outbursts. Blanche and Buck would stay with Bonnie while Clyde and W.D. went out to rob stores. At this point in the summer of 1933, Bonnie was either addicted to Amatol or going through withdrawals from it. This made her angry and volatile. She would argue with Blanche and Buck often, and eventually they didn't even want to stay with her. Barbiturate addiction has physical and mental effects. The mental effects can include mood swings, agitation, irritability, and even strained relationships. There's no evidence as to whether Bonnie kept using barbiturates after her wounds began to heal, but people who are dependent on barbiturates can also go through withdrawals as they stop taking the drug, which have the same symptoms. According to Blanche, Bonnie would threaten to fight her and said she was sick of having Blanche and Buck with them. She wanted it to just be her and Clyde again with WD. Bonnie apparently told Blanche that when she was healed, she would fight her and prove that she was stronger than her. But Bonnie's wound never had a chance to heal fully before her death. Clyde would watch over Bonnie, but even he had a hard time dealing with her. He went to Dallas to get her mother, but brought her sister, Billie Jean, instead. But even Billy didn't have much luck with calming Bonnie down. Clyde tried to throw the drugs away, but Bonnie got vicious with him. Bonnie was only 22 throughout 1933, and her leg would never fully heal. She was unable to stand without someone's help. But the gang kept moving. On July 18, 1933, in Platte City, Missouri, Bonnie, Clyde, Blanche, Buck, and W.D. were in bed when they heard banging on the door. Buck immediately sprung into action, grabbing a gun and rushing toward the door. He shot through the windows, and Clyde joined him, shooting the police officers who were outside. Clyde told everyone to go outside to make their escape. On the way out, Buck got shot in the head but didn't die immediately. Blanche helped him to the car, but her head was grazed by a bullet. She was also hit in the arm, got glass in her eyes, and eventually fainted. W.D. came out of the fight unscathed. Although Bonnie was getting better by this time, she was still too weak to fight. She even had trouble trying to walk. She stuck it out in the car during the fight. The gang sped off to Dexfield Park in Dexter, Iowa, to hide out for a while. Bonnie and Clyde went into town to steal medical supplies for Blanche and Buck, whose bullet-wounded head wasn't getting any better. 
but no one in the gang had died, and Bonnie and Clyde were determined to see that no one would. The car they used to flee to Iowa had 18 bullet holes in it from the Platte City shootout. And it's hard to lie low with a bullet-riddled car. Killing two birds with one stone, Clyde stole a doctor's car, which had a medical bag in it. On July 23, 1933, Bonnie, Clyde, and the gang were ambushed. W.D. and Clyde were both shot, and the gang jumped into the car. Clyde tried to drive away, but ended up stuck in a ditch. Bonnie said they should get out and run. But running was harder than it sounded. Bonnie could barely walk with her leg injury, let alone run. Buck was dying, with a badly bleeding bullet wound in his head. Blanche's eyes were still wounded from the Platte City shootout. With W.D. and Clyde's new wounds, the entire gang was injured. Seeing no other option, they ran for it. They made it up a hill, with Clyde, W.D., and Bonnie shooting behind them. Blanche and Buck didn't think they could go any farther. After a few more attempts at running away and trying to catch up with Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D., Buck and Blanche were arrested. Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. escaped. But Bonnie and Clyde wouldn't be free for long. Only 10 months later, Bonnie and Clyde would be lying dead inside another bullet-riddled car, betrayed by someone they thought was a friend. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Now the story continues. With Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. all injured, it was difficult to evaluate their options. Escaping on foot had been too much for Bonnie. She was barely conscious and begged W.D. to put her out of her misery. W.D. had a wounded chest and leg, and Clyde had a wounded arm and leg. They were distraught, thinking about Buck and Blanche, who they believed had to be dead. In reality, they were both in the hospital. Buck died there from his wounds, while Blanche was treated and later transported to prison, where she would stay for 10 years. Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. planned to find a farmer with a car they could use. They went to a farm where a young man named Marvell Feller, afraid of the bloody gang, gave them his car. They traveled around the Midwest, stealing guns and ammo, medical supplies, money, and food. They went through Nebraska, Minnesota, Colorado, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Mississippi. In August 1933, less than a month after the ambush in Iowa, Clyde let W.D. out of the car so he could steal a new car for them. But W.D. never returned. Bonnie and Clyde were on their own once again. By this time, Bonnie was getting better and Clyde's wounds were healing. Bonnie and Clyde lived out of their car, and Bonnie started writing poetry again. They finally felt like they might not get caught, so they decided to return home to see their families. Throughout the fall, from roughly September to mid-November, Bonnie and Clyde stuck close to Dallas and saw their families nearly every day. In October 1933, Bonnie began drinking more heavily than usual. And between that and her leg, she looked far older than 23. 
According to psychologist Kenneth J. Doka, the death of a child is something that affects the entire family. This grief can manifest itself in anger or guilt. It's common for people who have had issues of substance abuse in the past to turn to substance abuse to self-medicate during a time of grief. Bonnie was a heavy drinker and addicted to barbiturates, so it makes sense that she might turn to alcohol to self-medicate. But the law wouldn't stop for Bonnie's grief. Sheriff Smoot Schmid, who was the first to call Bonnie dangerous in the papers back in January 1933, got word that she and Clyde were back in Texas. He was hell-bent on catching them this time. But there weren't many who wanted to help Schmidt with his quest. Bonnie and Clyde had given so much money to so many struggling people by this time, there were few people who were willing to turn them in. While Bonnie was at home, her mother Emma tried desperately once again to get her to leave Clyde. She knew that Bonnie could never survive as long as she was with him. She hated to see her daughter wounded so badly and hated Clyde for putting Bonnie through all that pain. Even Clyde wanted Bonnie to leave him so that she could stay alive. But Bonnie refused. On November 22, 1933, Bonnie and Clyde met up with their families in Sowers, Texas. As they were at the meeting place, Smoot Schmid and his officers drove past and shot at them. Bonnie and Clyde pulled out their guns as they sped away. This time, Bonnie did shoot. This time, it was kill or be killed. They escaped to Oklahoma, where Clyde stopped a nurse named Hattie Crawford and paid her to come to the abandoned farmhouse they were staying in to help treat the bullet wounds in their legs. He paid her well, so she helped them and didn't go to the police. They laid low for the rest of the year. But in January 1934, a man named Floyd Hamilton approached Clyde to break his brother Raymond out of Eastham prison camp. We mentioned Raymond in the last episode. He used to run with Bonnie and Clyde in 1932 before they drove him back to Michigan to start a new life. Clyde was reluctant to help him. He and Bonnie were still weak from the shootout in November. But Bonnie wanted to do it. She thought Raymond could join them and they could get back to robbing banks and finally having money again. She was ready to get back to adventure. Maybe that was her sensation-seeking personality at work again. Even though she was permanently injured from her leg burns, she was done lying around and being stagnant. Bonnie, Clyde, Floyd, and one other man sprung Raymond from jail. While Raymond was breaking out, three other prisoners joined him. Joe Palmer, Hilton Bybee, and Henry Methvin, a man from Louisiana who was serving time for attempted murder. After the breakout, the new Barrow gang, made up of Bonnie, Clyde, Raymond Hamilton, Bybee, Palmer, and Methvin, started robbing banks and stores and taking home thousands of dollars each. In early 1934, when they robbed a string of mercantile stores in Oklahoma, Bonnie's sister, Billie Jean, rode with them, but she went home soon afterward. Around this time, Frank Hamer, a former Texas Ranger, decided he wanted to be the one to hunt down Bonnie and Clyde. During his career as a Texas Ranger, Hamer was known to have killed many people in the line of duty, 
between 30 and 50 suspected criminals. With the search for Bonnie and Clyde heating up, the Dallas Dispatch newspaper ran an article that said, quote, Many members of the grapevine circuit here believe Clyde and Bonnie are near the parting of the ways, end quote. The article claimed that Bonnie was the brains behind every crime the Barrow Gang committed. It painted her as a heartless villain, even claiming, quote, she writes the orders and Clyde carries them out, while Bonnie stands to the side and watches his victims squirm in fear or wriggle in the dust in pain, end quote. This wasn't true. According to all historical sources, Clyde was the brains of the operation and did all the killing. Bonnie was the one who was always pushing him to take hostages instead of killing innocent people. The article also insinuated that Bonnie was in love with Raymond Hamilton and that she would kick Clyde to the curb and start sleeping with him instead. Hamer had no respect for Bonnie. He often referred to her as promiscuous and said she had many STDs. Hamer may have believed what he said. He may have been appalled that a woman could act this way. Or he may have thought that if he could turn Bonnie's fans against her, people would start giving them up. The country admired Bonnie far more than they admired Clyde, who was just another gangster. If Hamer could get the people against Bonnie, he might finally be able to take down the couple. After reading the Dallas Dispatch article, Bonnie wrote in a poem, quote, If a policeman is killed in Dallas, and they have no clue or guide, if they can't find a fiend, they just wipe their slate clean and hang it on Bonnie and Clyde. Rather than being angry or upset by this article, Bonnie and Clyde seemed to find it funny. They were back in the headlines again and getting credit for crimes in states they hadn't even been in. Funnily enough, the only thing that upset Bonnie is that the papers would call her Clyde's cigar-smoking mall. She didn't smoke cigars and hated that reputation. Bonnie and Clyde filed this article away with all the others and got back on with bank robbery. On February 27, 1934, the gang robbed the R.P. Henry Bank in Lancaster, Texas. On the way out of the bank, Clyde gave some money to a customer, telling him, quote, We don't want your money. We just want the banks, end quote, fulfilling his Robin Hood reputation. Bonnie and Clyde were smart to always look out for the little people. It may be because so many people admired them that they were able to stay free for so long. After the robbery, the gang argued over how to divide the loot. Some of the men were angry that Bonnie always got an equal cut, even when she did nothing. In this robbery, she wasn't even the getaway driver. But, of course, Clyde always wanted to give her an equal share. It was him and Bonnie against the world. Raymond's girlfriend, Mary O'Dare, had been traveling with them, and part of the fight was because Mary wasn't getting a cut of the money. Bonnie and Clyde kept spare money in their car, which they called their kitty money, after the term for a communal pot in poker games. Incensed by what he saw as Clyde's theft of someone else's share, Raymond took the kitty money and gave it to Mary. By the beginning of March, Raymond and Mary left the gang. There seems to have been a sense of loyalty between Bonnie, Clyde, and Raymond 
that prevented Clyde from trying to kill him for stealing the kitty money. And Bonnie probably wouldn't have let Clyde kill this man they had known for so many years. During this time, Clyde tried again to get Bonnie to leave him and said she would probably be absolved of all wrongdoing, but she refused. On April 1st, 1934, Easter Sunday, Bonnie, Clyde, and Henry Methvin were waiting on a roadside in Grapevine, Texas, to be joined by Joe Palmer, another gang member. Two motorcycle police, a rookie named H.D. Murphy, and a 26-year-old named Edward Wheeler rode up to them. Henry and Clyde got their guns. Without warning, Henry shot both police with a shotgun, killing them. A nearby farmer named Schiffer falsely stated that he saw Bonnie kill the two cops in cold blood and that she was laughing and joking about it afterward. The police found cigars and lemon peels at the scene, which told them Bonnie and Clyde were definitely there. Those were their trademarks. After the farmer's false statement, people began to hate Bonnie. The Dallas Morning News published a story about Murphy's 20-year-old fiance, who was supposed to marry him 10 days later, and the pain she was going through. People couldn't believe Bonnie would murder these two young police officers, and on Easter of all days. The public finally began to turn on their 23-year-old superstar. Frank Blake, an FBI agent who was in charge of the Dallas office, put all his agents on Bonnie and Clyde's trail. In Oklahoma on April 6th, Bonnie and Clyde were on their way to bring a little white rabbit to Bonnie's mother as an Easter gift. They got into a shootout with two officers, killing one and taking another, Chief Boyd, hostage. Their car was stuck in the ditch and Clyde held the eight to 10 bystanders at gunpoint and told them to help get the car out. Bonnie drove, and they got the car out of the ditch. They headed to Kansas with Boyd in the back seat. Bonnie made small talk with Boyd as they traveled, and she cleaned and bandaged his head wound. Though Clyde made Boyd nervous, he felt safe with Bonnie. Bonnie and Clyde gave him new clothes and fed him a nice meal with their stolen money. Before they let him go, Boyd wanted to do something for Bonnie. He asked her what she wanted him to tell the press. Her answer, tell them I don't smoke cigars. And he did. Smoot Schmid, Frank Hamer, and the FBI were on Bonnie and Clyde's tail. Their old gang members, including Raymond and Floyd, all seemed to hate them, and many of them were in prison. The public was starting to see them for the criminals they really were. For the first time, there was almost nowhere Bonnie and Clyde could go and remain safe. During this time on the run, they went to see notorious gangster Pretty Boy Floyd to see if he could help hide them. He wasn't home, but his sister-in-law put them up for a couple days. When Pretty Boy Floyd arrived home after Bonnie and Clyde were gone, he grew angry with his sister-in-law for helping them. You see, there were some people who weren't impressed with Bonnie and Clyde, other gangsters. Pretty Boy Floyd and fellow gangster John Dillinger both hated them and considered them stupid kids who were playing at being criminals. They didn't take them seriously. With no help from Pretty Boy Floyd, 
Bonnie and Clyde continued on the run themselves. That spring, Bonnie and Clyde decided they wanted to buy a house in Louisiana and settle down. They had fellow gang member Henry Methvin contact his parents about checking out a house for them that was close to the Methvin house. Bonnie and Clyde told their parents about it. Bonnie's mother, Emma, knew it would never happen, but wanted to let them dream. There were also rumors that Bonnie was pregnant at this time. In part one, we talked about how Bonnie had fertility issues and couldn't get pregnant. It's highly unlikely that she actually was pregnant at this time, and there's no proof to show that she was pregnant when she was killed a month later. It's possible she may have lied and told people she was pregnant. On March 3rd, 1934, Bonnie and Clyde committed their last bank robbery at Farmers Trust Savings and Bank in Everly, Iowa, with Bonnie acting as the getaway driver. On May 6th, Bonnie and Clyde visited home for the final time. Though they didn't know it would be their last time then, Bonnie gave her mother a poem she had recently finished writing called The Trail's End. It told of the downfall of Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie ends the poem like this. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief. But it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie was just 23, and Clyde was 25. On that trip home, Bonnie laid out her plans for her death. She asked her mother to bring her body home, and not to a funeral parlor. She asked to be buried next to Clyde, and begged her mother to never publicly say anything bad about him. Emma agreed. Though Bonnie and Clyde had brought friend and fellow gang member Henry Methvin's family money and were kind to them, it turned out to be one-sided. Henry's parents hated Bonnie and Clyde. They were terrified of them. They were also poor and could be easily bought. Hamer and the FBI made a deal with Henry's father, Ivy, to set up their demise. The price? A complete pardon for Henry. Ivy worked it out with Bonnie and Clyde to meet Henry on the side of the road in Sales, Louisiana at 9 in the morning on May 23, 1934. Henry wasn't in on this plan. Ivy then relayed the plan to Hamer. Hamer told him that he would have him wait on the side of the road and let them know when Bonnie and Clyde were on the way. The idea was that Bonnie and Clyde would stop if they saw Ivy. Ivy hated this idea because he was sure they would kill him, but the FBI and Hamer convinced him to do it. When 9 o'clock came and went, Ivy began to worry that Bonnie and Clyde knew what he was up to. After all, Clyde was never late. But at 9.15, Bonnie and Clyde rolled up. Bonnie in a red dress, eating a sandwich. Clyde in a blue Western dress shirt with his sandwich between them. As soon as they arrived, they were ambushed. The officers ran at them, shooting rapid fire. Bonnie and Clyde never fired a shot. Clyde died instantly, and some bullets ripped through the car and into Bonnie. Though Bonnie was no longer moving, Hamer went up behind the car and fired more bullets through the rear passenger window at her. 
and then circled around front and shot her directly through the front window. Bonnie was 23. Clyde was 25. The coroner's report said there were at least 17 bullet holes in Clyde's body and 26 in Bonnie's. They were difficult to embalm because of all the bullet holes. Someone broke into the coroner's and took photographs of Bonnie's dead, naked body to send to newspapers. The photos were published. The bodies of Bonnie and Clyde were also taken to Conger's Furniture Store, where children and townspeople could view them, proof that crime doesn't pay. When Bonnie's mother and brother came to identify her body, her mother fainted. Her worst fears had come true. Her Bonnie was finally killed. She broke her promise and didn't have Bonnie's funeral or burial anywhere near Clyde's. She's quoted as saying, he had her in life, but he won't have her in death. Clyde's family said 10,000 people attended his funeral. Bonnie's mother said that 20,000 attended Bonnie's. Whether those numbers were exaggerations or actually true is uncertain, but both funerals attracted huge crowds. Bonnie and Clyde's bullet-riddled car can be seen at Whiskey Pete's Casino in Prim, Nevada. Their guns were auctioned off for large sums of money. According to Bobby Livingstone of RR Auction, who auctioned off the guns... The two guns together sold for half a million dollars, uh, which was stunning and exciting for us. In 2018, the granddaughters of Smoot Schmid auctioned off a ring they found in his belongings. He had a box full of Bonnie and Clyde memorabilia, a letter to a fellow gang member written by Bonnie and signed by Clyde, mug shots, warrants, and a ring taken from the car they died in. The ring had three snakes with gemstones on each snake head. It sold for $20,000. Even now, nearly 85 years after their death, Bonnie and Clyde are remembered as two of the most dangerous and most intriguing criminals of all time. Inspiring an Academy Award-winning film, television episodes, books, and even a festival in Louisiana, Bonnie and Clyde have left an enduring cultural legacy. Their story continues to be an integral part of American folklore. And though we'll never know exactly what Bonnie was thinking, when she chose to live her life of crime. One thing is for sure. She got what she always wished for, everlasting fame. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Wednesday for another episode of Female Criminals. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, 
Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Female Criminals was written by Stacey Milborn and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson.